We're getting into uh, uh, some new themes that will take us through to the new year, entitled The Unexpected. Turn to the person next to you and uh, share with them what would be unexpected for you this Christmas. Go. Luke chapter 2 and uh, verse 12, thinking about what might be expected or unexpected, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Something incredibly expected in many ways, that if there was a baby, you would expect to find that baby wrapped up quite tightly in strips of cloth. So when the angel said to the shepherds, you'll find this baby wrapped in strips of cloth, it was like saying to the shepherds, you'll find the baby, he's the one in the baby grow. Because that's what they did with every baby. Something very familiar, something that you'd almost, uh, that would pass by unnoticed, that wouldn't grab you. And the Christmas story is like that. There are things that are very ordinary, very familiar, things that you would expect to find. A young girl and her husband, uh, totally uh, scared witless at the birth of this young child. But yet in the midst of the story, there are a number of things that are totally unexpected, that stand out. You'll find him in strips of cloth, but lying in a manger, totally unexpected. What parent on earth would put their baby in a manger? What parent on earth would long or desire or plan for their firstborn to be born in a stable? And it's the unexpected things that I'd like us to think about through these next few weeks. Because when things happen that are unexpected, it forces us to ask the question, why? Why did that happen like that? We do it all the time. When something unexpected happens in our lives, if it's good, uh, we probably just enjoy it for a moment. But if it's bad, we'll go, why Why me? What, why that? Why, why did it happen? And so I, I want us to think particularly about the things in the Christmas story that force us to stop and go, that's not what we would have expected. For example, if God was planning the birth of his son you would not expect him to choose a stable as the place for him to be born. So why? Why a stable? What's that place all about? And as a backdrop to the unexpected questions, we remind ourselves that with God, nothing takes him by surprise. We might wonder, was it a stable because God was taken by surprise at the timing of his son's birth? He came a couple of weeks early, took everyone off guard. Was God surprised that Bethlehem was full that weekend and there was no room in the inn? Was God surprised that the ensuite was not waiting? No. The God that holds everything in the palm of his hand. A God that is aware of every moment before, present, and uh, after it happens. A God who sees everything all at once and can control and understand and know the intricate workings of all our lives was not taken by surprise or off guard. Meticulously known, carefully planned, always understood. Understood. 
was the master who painted the masterpiece of the Christmas story. So why a stable? It's not what we would expect. Well, maybe it's a stable because image isn't important. In our world, image matters so much. If it was our son coming from heaven, then we would want to make sure that everything was right about his coming to make certain that we presented it in the best possible way so that nobody would be left in any doubt as to exactly who he was. The the best royal palace, the most successful royal family in the most influential and educated city and so on. We're obsessed with image. We'd want everything to look the part. We're more bothered about looking right sometimes than we are about being right. More bothered about what people see of us than the truth we actually see within us. We'll go to great lengths in order to make sure that people perceive us right, even if we know we are not quite right. So many examples of the power of image. It's not that I have clothes, but it's what kind of clothes I have that matters. It's not that I have a car, but what kind of car? Not that I have a phone, any phone, but what kind of phone? And if those things don't bite, something else will... The kitchen that you have or haven't got or the bathroom or the postcode where you live or whether your children went to this school, that school, to university or not, where you go on holiday, what gigabyte is your iPad? Do you have an iPad? Our culture draws us every moment of every day to buy into the notion that if I look right, then I am right. And yet inside, we struggle, and we question, and we wonder. It's not just a contemporary thing, is it? One of the best things that we buy as a family is our National Trust membership card. Three of you appreciate that. And so when we go on holiday... We have to make sure that we go to as many National Trust places as we can possibly fit in. Why? Because if we didn't have the little card, it would cost us about 55 quid to get in each one. And because we have the card, we can get in for free and we need to make the card count. So, here we go. Every morning, where are we going to go today? Mm, National Trust. Kids love it. What's going to be there? Don't know. We do, they say. (laughs) And eventually you fight your way through the coaches of senior citizens and you... (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. You fight your way through a coach full of tourists. (laughs) Just random people of no specific identity or uh, age profile or economic strata. But without exception, usually with these properties, you drive in down a sweeping driveway and there will be a moment when you turn round the bend, usually you're high up, and you can look across at all the valley or the land and in the middle is this magnificent mansion. 
So that as you turn the corner and you see the house for the first time, you go, wow. And it was built like that. It was built for the why wow factor. So as you're uh, driving along in your horse-drawn chariot or whatever it might be, or your scooter or your skateboard, you go around the corner, you go, wow, this is an amazing building. Someone really important and wealthy and influential and special and honorable must live here. Look at the house that they've got. It's often quite the opposite if you find the backstory of the people who own those or lived in those properties. But what's the message that they want you to receive? That we're important, we're influential, we're somebody. Look at the house that we have got. Once inside, you can go from room to room, and there's usually a National Trust volunteer of no particular age demographic (laughs) sitting in the corner playing Sudoku. And if you're interested in what happens in the room, you can wake them up gently and ask about what used to go on in this room. And they will usually say, not very much. Because actually, in most of these big, massive, impressive rooms, not much happened, but once a year there'd be a special party, a few times there'd be a particular celebration. In fact, there was one house where there was a whole wing to the house that had never, ever been inhabited or used, why was it built? Was it built because they one day thought they would use it? No, the only reason it was built was so that it would look good. And so we live with this image. And it's always been thus. Maybe that's why, when he came, He came to a stable. Maybe that's why. Because there was nothing to prove. Nothing to make a statement about. Nothing to try and show to somebody else in order to impress or influence. No pretense. No spin. No advertising, no gimmick, just the real thing. You see, we're always trying to prove ourselves, either to others or sometimes to ourselves. We're driven by this need to prove to each other that actually we're okay. Driven by the need to prove to myself that I'm okay, I'm as good as everyone else, really. It's so powerful within us. How are you? Fine. When you're not. Why? Because we want to show that we're all right, that we've got it together. And so we create this image, this aura around ourselves in order to prove maybe to you and maybe to me, maybe to each other, that in the end we are okay. Maybe he was born in a stable just to remind us there's nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. There's nothing you can do for God to love you more. And nothing you can do that will make God love you less. There's no image to live up to. No pretense to keep reinforcing. Nothing to prove. We're all the same. Broken. Fallen. Damaged. Marred. Wounded. 
yet beautiful, wonderful, gloriously made. Maybe it was a stable because there's nothing to hide. We're always hiding. We don't want others to get too close. So we create these distances between us, even in our homes and in our marriages. The the real me is a little further back than I'd like you to believe it is because maybe the real me is too stupid or too boring or too ugly or too grubby or too selfish. So I have this image that's out here so you can see the image and be content with that. You can relate to the image of who I am and the real me can stay hidden a little bit more. But then I'm hiding back here and it's lonely. Uh, And that makes me fearful. Uh, And you're lonely as you hide back from your image and that makes you fearful too. And the true life of God somehow slips away. Because instead of being honest and open and real, we just hide. Maybe that's why a stable, a place you can't hide, you can't pretend, you you can't create a facade. Maybe that's why it was a stable Wouldn't it be a glorious thing to live a life where you didn't need to hide anymore? You weren't hiding. Jesus said streams of living water can can flow within you. That's the life he came to bring. That's why maybe a stable, because it was time to be real and honest and open and time to be true. Imagine that kind of life though. What a relief, what freedom. Maybe that's why it was a stable. Maybe it's a stable because wealth isn't that important in the end. Maybe that's why it was a stable. Most expensive mince pie is worth £3,000. It's on display at London Shopping Centre in December 2011. Last year... We spent 594 million on unwanted Christmas gifts. One in ten of the gifts the average person received was not really what they wanted. I would have thought it would be a lot higher. <laughs> and people were very quick last year to get rid of their unwanted gifts with 1.5 million new items going on eBay on Boxing Day 2011. So that's the time to shop. So who's driving all this? Who's jumping up and down and saying, we need more stuff, we need more stuff, we need more stuff? Here are two challenging thoughts for us. It was found in a survey in December 2010 that almost 90% of under-18s, so 90% of children, would be happy to receive fewer presents to help ease financial concerns for their family. Who's driving this? Question. Moneysupermarket.com research into into Christmas, uh, into how the cost of Christmas has changed in the last decade. So uh, 10 years ago, seemingly things were were, were more prosperous than they are today. So what's changed in in the last 10, 10 years? Well, we spend slightly more on gifts, 410 pounds, apparently, on gifts than we did in 2001. But spending on food and drink and socialising have been considerably reduced. 
So we're not spending the same amount of money as we did 10 years ago, but we're prioritizing stuff over people. Stuff over socializing, possessions over people. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Is that why he was born in a stable? To say that stuff doesn't matter anymore? When our life is consumed with how to get it and keep it and get the most out of it, when television shows are all about uh, making you a millionaire and more, we want to make it, hoard it, spend it, and we'll lie, cheat, steal, trick, take risks, even kill to have it. Why do we behave as if stuff can cure all our ills when we honestly know that it can't? Can it buy love? No. Can it buy life in its richness? No. Can it buy peace? No. Can it buy contentment? No. Can it get me right with God? No. And yet we live as if the stuff will do for me what I need done for me, the cure of my ills, the panacea for all our woes. Is that why he chose a stable? To say, never forget, it's not about the stuff. Jesus was born into a very poor family. When they went to name him at the temple, they took only a dove, when normal people would have taken lambs, but really poor people were allowed to take two doves. Mary and Joseph were really poor. What was God saying when he chose that family? What was God saying when he chose those circumstances? Was Jesus going to be less alive than you or me? Was Jesus somehow going to be uh, less than fully the person God had made him to be? Less present, less influential, less significant because he had a stable rather than a... No, not at all. What was God saying when he placed the person who would live the life most fully alive than any other person, who would live the kind of life that you and I need to wait to the other side fully to live, who would live the life that he was totally made to be, the most significant, the most influential, the most history-turning, changing life. But he had nothing for almost all of it, even at his prime. They said of him, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. All the stuff. Just a little bit more. The unexpected. And then there are the two other people in that stable. Forget about the cows and the sheep and Bob the Builder and Doctor Who and everybody else who turns up. Because they weren't all there, you know. Mary... And Joseph. What's God saying in that stable scene with that young couple, barely old enough to have children? What's God saying? I think He's saying something about trust for you and me. You see, when God said to Abraham he'd be a father in old age, Abraham laughed. When God said the same to Sarah, she laughed as well. When God told Moses, go and lead your people, he kind of went, I can't. And when the Israelites were faced with all kinds of challenges in the desert, they said that God had left them. And when Gideon was called to be a judge and a leader, he says, I just can't do it, and so on and so forth. And then when Mary was asked, would you do this? She said, yeah, I'm up for that. I'll do that, she said. I will put my whole trust 
in what you are telling me. It makes absolutely no sense. If I am going to be pregnant without a husband, I'm not only going to lose my social status, I'm going to lose my social security because the man who would have married me won't marry me. That would have been the expectation. No one would have expected it. Not even Mary or Mary's parents or Joseph or Joseph's parents. She would have been out on her own. But yet she says, I'm going to trust. And you say she didn't have time to think about all those things. No, no, no. A young girl in that context would have known exactly what it meant to have a baby without a father. And she said, I'm going to trust. And what about that guy, Joseph, who who, who just so conditioned by the day decides that he's going to bless Mary by divorcing her quietly? That was a respectable, a responsible, even an honorable thing in their culture for him to do. And yet he hears a whisper. He doesn't get a great vision from heaven, but he has a whisper in a dream and he senses God speaking and he says, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. And this young couple learned to hear God speak and they learned to trust. And Joseph's ability to hear God speak would one day, a few years later, save baby Jesus' life as they would run as refugees to Egypt away from Herod and his desire to kill him. So what's important about the stable? It's not about the image that we'll create or about the wealth that we might cling on to, but it's about the trust that we are asked, that we are called to exhibit and know. Let's pray.